This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. Hey, have you heard about Code School? Code School is a terrific way to learn by doing. You actually get to work through exercises on their website and learn how to build code. They have courses on Ruby, Python, .NET, iOS, Git, databases, and of course, Angular. And you can try before you buy, so they have free intro courses to things like Git, Angular, and iOS. So go check them out at codeschool.com and start learning by doing. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 116 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have John Papa. Hello. Jules Kramer. Hola. Ward Bell. Hello there. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Lucas Rubelke. Yo. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, don't forget to go pick up the videos from Angular Remote Comp. Uh, this week we have a special guest, and that is Tobias Bosch. Did I say that right? No, it's actually Tobias. Tobias. So that's how we say Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Tobias or not Tobias? That is the question. <laughs> yeah, you could put it that way. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. So, so my name is Tobias Bosch. I work for Google, and I'm part of the Angular Core team. And I, I did a lot of changes to the Angular compiler and built big parts of it. So you do the hard work and everybody else does the easy stuff? Is that how that? <laughs> well, there, there's different kind of, kind of works, but I, I did some really some bigger refactorings internal, like shifting things around, arranging things differently so we can get faster and, and also smaller. So how many comp what? Angular compilers have you written, Tobias? Oh, that <laughs> depends how you count. <laughs> <laughs> the new new compiler? I think four about. Oh, All right. Man. Like since we so, started Angular two, about four. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. The joke around here is that you land one, and then you come in the next week and say, "But I could make it faster." <laughs> yeah. I'm sure people are wondering what what does the compiler actually do? I mean. You know, when I think compiler, I think C into bytecode. So the compiler, like initially, like it might not have been a real compiler. Like if you look at Angular 1, Angular 1 also has a compiler, like we call it compiler. But is it a real compiler? I don't know. So the main purpose of the compiler in Angular is to, to take what you wrote as a user. So you write template files. You write JavaScript, you write TypeScript, you write annotations, and bring this to life to an application that actually runs. So that's that's a task of the compiler. Like traditionally, compilers, as you know them, is like I give you a file and then you spit some other file out at the end. The mm -hmm. Angular 2 compiler so far worked more in the mode of of a browser. Like in the browser, if you type JavaScript. You, you, you don't see an output artifact coming out of that compiler, but the browser runs a compiler, but it's a just-in-time compiler. This means it runs your code, compiles it on the fly, and executes it immediately. And that's the mode how Angular 1 runs right now, and that's also how we started out with, with our compiler on Angular 2. So not a lot of people understand what there is for you to compile because you know it's easy to confuse it with transpiling from one like from TypeScript or ES6 down to a browser and stuff like that and that's 
that's a kind of compilation process. But there's something that Angular needs to do that goes above and beyond anything that would happen in the code level. And, and so maybe you can talk about what are the things that I, as a developer of Angular apps, do that you then have to compile. What do you do to the stuff I write? Where, what, what, what are you doing to it? Because it looked pretty good when I wrote it. Am I doing it wrong? So you as developer, if you write JavaScript code, you could just run it right in the browser. There's nothing to compile so far. Okay, so now you've got JavaScript or maybe TypeScript and then transpile down to JavaScript. That works. So now think about, okay, you've got, you want to have dependency injection. So now suddenly, um, how, how does this work? You need to have a container that news up your classes. So who creates the container actually? So for that, we need to analyze your code and see like who depends on, on whom and instantiate everybody in the right order and then get things going. So this analysis phase and then instantiating things, you could call like already a kind of mini compile. So that's just JavaScript. But the other big part is the templates that you write. These are not JavaScript. You cannot run them. You could say, well, they are HTML and we do just an inner HTML on an, on an element. But that's not how Angular works, right? Angular has this data binding magic built in. So if we just did inner HTML, like you, you would see the content, but there would be no data. The templates would not be live. Nobody would instantiate your directives and nobody would, would react to events. So that's the other part. So we analyze your templates, go over each element, see which directive matches here, set up event listeners, set up data binding, and first, we need to analyze all of this and then bring it to life later on. So, so does that template, does it end up being HTML or does it end up being something else? What, when, you, when you're done with this thing, what do I end up with in my What's in my hands when I'm done? I, know, I realize, and you're going to tell us this, that, that uh, under one mode, I can't even see what happens because it ends up in memory and then off it goes. And in another mode, I'll actually be able to see files uh, on disk. But, but tell us a little bit about what, what is the thing that's produced? Please tell so, me it's React, Dom. <laughs> exactly. It's just React. He trans he compiles to React and we're done. Sorry, I couldn't help so we, it. Go ahead. We're compiling to a lower level than, than React. So we could transpile to React, but this would leave us too much overhead because then you need Angular and React both to kind of diffing, and that's probably not what you want as end user. So what, what, what we compile a template and your code into is first a factory, a factory that can later on instantiate your application. If you run this, this factory and your template comes to life, in the end, we create elements via document.createElement and append them together. And then later on, we update properties on these elements. When we need to new up your directives, we call its constructor, keep references to it, and, and move these around, pass it to depending to directives that depend on other directives and so forth. So at the and if I'd had a, a template that was in a different file, you would have uh, you would have read it from the file and you would have merged it all into something into this factory. Right. Yes. So each component will, like after compilation, has one factory. Component becomes a component factory. If you call that factory, we instantiate the component, and we also create the DOM via document.createAlone calls. And then if you have like components that nest other components we recurse down into like the parent factory we'll call the factory of a child component. And with that, in the end, you just need to create the root component and it will create all the child components transitively. Tobias, one of the realities we had in Angular 1 was that if we had a controller and we wanted to load a template, uh, if we did nothing else, we would have to make an HTTP call to, make, to get that template, uh, unless we use something like a ng uh, template cache one of those plugins that we could use through Grunt or Gulp, for example. Tell us how that kind of a thing works uh, after running through the compiler with Angular 2. So it is similar. Like in one mode, in Angular, you can still load the templates from the server. So while the compiler is compiling your components, it will hit a template URL in your add component annotation, and then it will go fetch that template. And that's abstracted. So there's a resource loader behind the scenes, and there are two versions of it. One is actually calling HTTP, XML HTTP request to fetch your resource. The other one can read the file from cache. I think then you're pretty similar to Angular 1 in that regard. 
And these two modes become available to me by doing what? There's there's a distinction. How do I get one mode versus the other? It's a configuration for the for the runtime compiler. If you use the runtime compiler, I'm not sure if we have docs about it yet, but maybe soon. <laughs> so so that so what you were describing there, where it actually goes out and gets a template live while you're sitting in the browser, that's the that's what we've been calling the JIT or just in time compiler. Is that right? But there are two modes of the JIT compiler. Like it, it can either fetch them live from like via via request, or it has the cache already. But it's still compiling the templates on the fly. So the, the templates are served as maybe in a right in a JavaScript, but they're still templates like HTML strings. Uh, and the conversion of these HTML strings into factory happens on the fly in the browser. So, it's so if we different. call that. For just our argument's sake, if you call that the JIT mode, the, the runtime and the browser mode, as Ward was saying, if that's what we call that, in Angular 1, as I said, we, we had a way we could use a plugin to inline those templates. In Angular 2, do we need to inline the templates, or can we use server-side compilation to solve this, too? Yeah, so sure, like Angular 2 has this new thing called ahead-of-time ahead compilation. And that's, that's new. Like, Angular 1 did not have this thing. And the, the idea there was that we remove the whole compilation, like means analysis of all the templates, walking of all the templates, producing these factories all to the server side. And to read templates, we would just go and read a file. And then we produce these factories, and then your application just includes these factories directly. They are just TypeScript. So it's just JavaScript that, that can be loaded into the browser and run directly. So that, that's a big thing, actually. We, we wanted to do this for Angular 1, but we were never able to do this. And it's actually what? interesting to, to think about why. <laughs> um, so the, the, the reason why is, in Angular 1, the problem was we, we never really knew what, what directives were available in the system. Maybe you remember in Angular 1, you, have, you can define modules, there are registered directives and pipes, but it's all imperative. Like, if you think about a tool, a tool does not want to run a user user's code because you could have like crazy stuff in your code. You could do a a for um, a while loop that's never terminating, and then suddenly my tool stops to work. So I don't want to execute your code just to get just to know which directives you're using. But that was impossible in Angular One. In Angular Two, we we went a different route with with these decorators. And the nice thing about these decorators is that we can read them out without running your code. And now we are able to read them and compile the templates and do all of this without running your, your code, produce the factories, and like this is this, that's a huge shift. Now, one thing that I'm seeing with the ahead of time compiler is that all that work gets done ahead of time, right? So it it's all kind of set up to just do the job once it's all um, put on the website. But it seems like a lot of work if you're doing the JIT compiling in the browser. Does it slow things down as opposed to just, say, interpolating strings and dropping HTML into the DOM? Or is it still more performant and more efficient to have the compiler there? It is still more efficient to have the compiler there, there because like, if you want to do inner HTML, okay, if you just do it once, you might be fast. But let's say you have 20 components on your page, then you need to do like 20 inner HTMLs. And then you realize, oh, wait, inner HTML might not be the fastest actually in the end because the browser needs to spawn up its own parser, right? To parse the HTML, you pass it and then create the elements. So then you, you think, oh, let me actually do document create element. Okay, so then you, you change your code to actually do document create element. And then you, you see, ah, okay, so I've got these data bindings. Okay, let me think about how can I do this simply? Oh, I, I just create a data structure that like keeps mapping of the created nodes to my expressions, and then you go for you, you do step by step by step, and suddenly you have an Angular two compiler that you wrote yourself. Right, that makes sense. So it's doing more for me than just making Angular magic work. It's it's doing yeah, it all yeah. intelligently and efficiently for me. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and the last thing is like the Angular two Angular two compiler is not done yet. It will probably never be done. Like the, the syntax stays the same, what the user writes, but, but we keep on optimizing it. So one of our next goals is to, to make it even faster. Like the code that we produce should be faster. We're working on the code that we produce should be smaller. And we're working on 
making the compi compilation itself be faster. Do you know how long I waited for Angular 2 and now you're telling me that it'll never totally be finished? <laughs> but I think that's what you hope for, right? You want half, the audience, half the audience had a heart attack when you said it's not done. <laughs> well, well the, the syntax is done and it's stable. Like the, what, what you wrote is stable, but we keep on optimizing our internals. You know, what are the key advantages to this AOT approach? Just so people can sort of, you know, see, say whether they want that or not. Um, if you could, just like the, the top three advantages to it. All right. So let me think. So first off, you don't need to ship the compiler to the client. So that's a bunch of, of Anglo, Core, Anglo Core code that you actually don't have to ship. So with that, you can build applications that are maybe 20 kilobytes minified gzipped. If you include the Anglo compiler, you're with you're around 100 kilobyte minified gzipped. So that's a big gap. So that's that's for one. Second, you don't need to compile your templates on application bootstrap. So application bootstrap gets faster, partly because it's less code, but the other part is actually that we don't need to compile your components anymore. They are compiled. And they, they, they just run, like they're optimized for, for running. So that, that's second. And then third is um, it's safe for your application. So if we compile your templates on the fly, we convert the expressions you wrote, we need to somehow evaluate them. We can do this in a slow mode, but that's not what you want. You want to have this fast. And for that, we need to eval your, like some generated code. But as soon as you do eval in the browser, you you are open to to, to attacks. They, not, not that you do it purposefully, but there might be some bugs in your code that will allow some hacker to inject some code into your page, and now suddenly you you eval their code, and they can take take over your website. If you use the offline compiler, we will never eval, and then you can run your your application in in with content security policy, and content security that. Policy that's a new feature from browsers. Essentially, the server can tell the browser, hey, on this page, never eval anything. And so let me think about that for a second, because does any other framework get, I, I, I can imagine, I'm thinking about how I would write any other framework uh, that was trying to do what Angular is doing. And it would seem that I would need eval in order to make that work. Um, so is every other framework uh, susceptible to the eval is evil attack or um or you know is is this something unique to angular as far as you know um no that's not true so you you technically you don't need evil you can do reflection in javascript right you can just have if i know the property name i can get it from the object and so forth but if you want to have a fast mode then then you you will need evil like if you have a lot of these reflection calls then your code will get slow, that because that's not what browsers optimize for. Browsers optimize for static code, not for reflective code. And then a lot, a lot of the times to optimize it is by using evil or new function, like to generate a function from a string. Uh -huh. but, but that's not possible for other frameworks, like to use this fast path. So without this AOT, I would be kind of stuck in a um, between two bad choices. Either it, my performance has to suck, or I have to open myself up to a secu potential security hole. Yeah, we, which might be exploited by hackers or not. You, you don't know, but yeah, yeah. nobody can guarantee that every code is flawless. That's interesting because I, I, I've heard the other arguments before, but I hadn't. I had forgotten that there is an, a security advantage to this. Um, yeah, uh, one of the things that that comes from this, though, is that um, the template, the HTML, and the component are really tightly coupled together. I mean, they're really one thing. When we, if we were to talk about a component, we're really talking about the HTML and the uh, HTML template and the class together. Now, uh, in other circumstances, people have been very flexible about sort of dynamically taking whatever HTML they want and, and hooking it up to a class. And Angular do doesn't work that way. So, so for dynamic scenarios, what's, what's our game plan? So there are two. So one is, you could say, well, I still, I just use the runtime compiler 
sure then you can also compile things on the fly while your application is running. The other way to do it is to say, I actually know what kind of components I can insert here. So let's let's think about a dynamic form. Let's say I have a form, and in the form I can display an input, I can display a text box, but I don't know ahead of time like what I should display. It's it's defined by my data that I get as input. Mm-hmm. So that what, what the dynamic form can say, it, it can tell Angular via a special property, it's called entry components. Hey, I, I will later on need to be able to create an input. I will later on need to be able to create an, maybe a material button and, and so forth. So you list these components there. And then the ahead of time compiler knows about these guys and can compile them as well and provide the factories for these components in a well-known place. And then, you're, and then our dynamic form during runtime, it, it can just ask Angular, give me the factory for material input or material button because it, it declared it before that I will need these guys. And then it, there's a thing called um, component factory resolver. So it asks this guy, given the factory for material button, and then Angular knows about this already because the offline compiler provided it at the right place. And then you can create these guys on the fly, as many as you want to. So it's like I have a toolkit of widgets that I could put onto the screen, and if I've got my widget collection right, you're saying that I could have some metadata somewhere, and even in AOT world, I could dynamically construct a view using these this predefined library of widgets. Yes, yes, you, you could totally do that. Wow, there's we're going to really, have to learn how to do that. Yeah, there, there's only one. There's a little drawback to this, like all. Like it's it's actually an advantage of AOT that I didn't mention before. With AOT, you can do crazy optimization on JavaScript code. It's called tree shaking. Tree shaking, essentially, if you have a, a great JavaScript compiler like Google Closure Compiler, it can analyze your code and find out which parts are used and which parts are not used. And the parts that are not used, it can just say, I'm not going to use this. I just remove it from your JavaScript code because I can prove it's not being used. And then I can do other crazy stuff. I can rename properties because I know nobody's using them reflectively and that kind of stuff. Um, if you use these entry components, this will tell Angular, like Angular will put these components at a specific place in your generated code, and then Closure Compiler will not remove these. So if you say, I will, I might be using Angular material, uh, material button, material input, these two things will not be tree shaken out of your application. Even like you, you might not use them later on, but they will stick to your code. So let me let me push you on that for a sec. In Angular one, just going back to the days we've been living in the last five six years, we often have the problem where somebody pulls in a widget library that's got fifty components, and the first problem they run into is why is my app five meg when I download it and bring it to the browser, right? Because they're yeah. getting all these components they're not using. So then there were tools that came out that tried to do what you're proposing as tree shaking to figure out how do we get rid of the things we're not using, but none of them ever really worked that well, uh, partially because they didn't have a good way of figuring out how to shake those guys out. Uh, and Angular 2, I'm assuming, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming what's doing that is looking through the module imports, ES6 modules. Is that what's doing it? Yes, exactly. And plus together with ahead-of-time compilation. If you think about it, as soon as you have reflection in, in your system and you use it heavily, like there's no way that any optimizer can find out which properties and which classes you use and which ones you're not using. With AOT, we actually like the optimizer can find out which things are actually used in which factories and which ones are not used. And then even if you have an import, it can still be removed because the com- the optimizer can prove this thing is actually not used. Like there are different kind of optimizers. There's uh, that's cool. Rollup is a simple thing. Like it, it essentially just checks which, which ones you imported and does a little bit of analysis in functions, but not very deeply. Google Closure Compiler can go really deep and like remove all the imports that that it can prove you actually never used. Sorry, what do you mean by prove that it's not used? Like it's one thing to say I'm bringing in a symbol and that symbol is like never referenced inside the file, but what if it's referenced but in you know somehow ends up in a dead code branch or something like that? Can it actually yeah. remove it at that point? Yeah, exactly. So it can remove functions, it can remove methods from from classes if, if they are never called and so forth. And then like transitively down, right? Like if your symbol 
is used in a function that is not being called, then the function is removed, then your symbol is removed as well, and so forth. Hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering here, because when we asked what the compiler did, you went straight to templates. And then we kind of graduated from templates to components. And now we're talking about tree shaking. So is, is this all a function of the compiler, or is this ahead of time compiling? And are there other things that it does that we haven't talked about yet? So this tree shaking, that's not something Angular does. Right. Angular is just producing TypeScript code, properly, ty properly typed TypeScript code from your templates. Mm -hmm. And then there are external tools that do the tree shaking based on this information. Okay. So uh, the compiler, the Angular compiler specifically, um, just does the, the template compilation and does some work optimizing the components. Is that correct? And it also cares about any modules. Okay. So it does something I, I, with the modules too? It produces, an, it produces an initial injector as well. So if you bootstrap Angular, if you bootstrap, there's no component yet, right? But mm -hmm. still, you, there are some services available that you can use. There's the router, for example. The router does not live on a component. Like, it's independent of components. It can actually create other components. So we need to have a place where the router lives. And that's our, our bootstrap injector. And this guy is also generated based on the providers you have on ng-modules. It's similar to a component without a template, kind of. <laughs> it's weak and hard enough. I want to talk about size for a minute, because uh, you've mentioned some numbers, and I'd like to just ask you kind of what the context of those were. So when we run AOT, first of all, it's not AOT itself isn't going to make the bundle smaller, correct? It's just putting the code in a way that is compiled on the server. Uh, now, I realize you're sending less to the client because you don't have to send the compiler there. But the output of AOT is not smaller than before I got into AOT, right? That is true. The output is actually a little, it is bigger than the HTML template that you wrote. So, right. Well, if you use AOT, you get the benefit of not shipping the compiler and also not parts that within Anglo Core that are not used anymore. The downside regarding size is that the generated factories are bigger than your original templates. That, that being said, this generated code, it gzips well, but right now it's really too big. <laughs> like it's like we think it's too big. Like it, it works, it's not a problem. Like it, it works, but we are working on making these things smaller. Well, and that's where my next question was gonna go. I, I did some tests over the last week or so with AOT. And I started with AOT, got my code working, and I took the two hero sample, for example, and I ran it through there, and then I used rollup on it to make a bundle out of it, which, you know, did the tree shaking and put it into a single bundle. And then I gzipped it and looked at it. Now, when I took the roll-up bundle, not the gzipped version, but the roll-up bundle, and I explored what was in it, I was pretty amazed at how much it shook out of the app. So it was only using the pieces that I had. But what really struck me, and I wanted to ask you about in this show, was I was using forms, because uh, Tour Heroes uses forms, it uses the router, it uses HTTP, it uses common... Uh, uses platform, these different modules that are inside of uh, Angular 2. The total size of uh, Angular 2 for that in rollup was about 70K. And you mentioned yeah. 20K earlier. So am I doing it the wrong way, or did I miss something, or, or did I need to do something else? So right now, you cannot do it better. And it's sad, because like, like rollup is not perfect. Like As I said, rollup just does a shallow analysis of functions, but it stops eventually, you need a tool like Google Closure Compiler. And this guy will remove all the rest. Exactly. Okay, so it's not the AOT side, then it's, it's roll-up isn't doing as good of a, or as good of a job, but as thorough of a job as Closure would do, right? Exactly, and, and roll-up has a hard job doing it, actually, because for, like, for, for doing it better, you need, you need a type system to be able to analyze which things are used and which ones are not, like which properties are used which methods are used, Rollup is working, it, it's working independently of a type system. So Google Closure Compiler uses a type system internally, and like to get these small numbers, we convert what you write in TypeScript into the type system of Google Closure Compiler, and then let Google Closure Compiler do its job. That's the scenario we would like to for you to be able to do. It's not there yet. So it's working in some experiments. It works for us internally, because we have our build tool set up and it works nicely, but like it's super hard to use for external users right now. 
But that's one of our, the priorities of our TypeScript team to make this possible for external users as well. Thanks. That's that's pretty awesome to hear. And, and one other follow-up question on that I have is, I was playing with RxJS. It's something that uh, what what Warden I'll lump you into this word. Warden I have been doing lately is we will refer to just the pieces of RxJS that we want. Like I want the operator for uh, map, for example, or for do, but I don't want everything. So instead of pulling in the entire library, I've been pulling in just the pieces. Now, with roll-up or closure, could I just reference all of RxJS and let tree shaking basically shake the rest out? Because that would be easier in code to just say, give me all of Rx and you know, we'll sort it out later. So depends how you use Rx. There are two modes in Rx. Like one is it monkey patches the prototype of observable. If you do that, like that's super hard to to shake out. The other option is to just import the operators separately, like as functions, and use them directly. And and then that, that's that's tree shakeable. Okay, which would mean you have to do each one individually with the operators, which is essentially equivalent to what we're doing right now in the yeah. samples and the docs. It's actually worse than that. It, you have to call them as functions as opposed to being able to chain, to do method chaining, which is the typical way in which you construct right. observable now. Which, which makes the coding harder, yeah. Yeah, but this will be resolved in ES7. There will be a new syntax. Oh, that's right. Use a function as if it was a a method on an object, like this is special syntax. I don't remember it exactly, but like this will be solved. Yeah, it's a, it's a double, colon, double colon syntax, something like that, right? Yeah. Which is also an advantage of using TypeScript because we don't have to wait for ES7. Usually somebody says, oh, ES7, my gosh, now we got to wait three years for my browser to support it. But uh, that's one of the reasons that TypeScript is so exciting about this. So can I throw another oddball question at you? Uh, it's one of those mysteries that uh, actually John and I kick around, but I'm sure other people have noticed it too. And that is that sometimes we use these uh, elements, special uh, uh, directives, or I don't know, what they, maybe they're components, that come from um, Angular, and like router outlet. And we think... We talk to people and say, oh, well, you know, when the router does this, it puts your view, the thing you navigated to, inside the router outlet. Except that if you look at the HTML, it's not true. The router outlet is still sitting there in the DOM, and the actual content is in a sibling. And I've noticed that in a couple of other places where where I, I think maybe ng content or something, I don't know, some of these things, they turn out to be look like markers, and the content isn't actually between the tags, it's adjacent to the tags. Now, can you explain why Angular does it that way? Why it doesn't just split the, ta the tags apart and jam the stuff in between, what the what the reasoning is there? What's the advantage? So it's it's simpler for Angular because this way Angular just needs to know about one way of appending things. If you think about ngif, ng4, there you actually want to have like this sibling behavior, right? You you write you write your store thing, your store thing, and it should be like as siblings to to this place where you declared it. And your four stamps are like siblings to each other, not nested things. So you you will need the sibling thing. Anyways, for these directives, and now for for adding children, like there's actually two cases. So one case is if the element is empty, then you want to append to the end of this element. But then what what if the element is not empty? Like let's say you have a router outlet and you put something in the children already. Mm -hmm. Like where do you put it now? You need to have a like the user needs to be able to specify at which place should the new content go. So you need to put a marker in there, and then what do you do with a marker? You insert next to that marker. Like in, in, in the end, you need to have a way of specifying where exactly in the DOM should something go. And that the simplest way of doing this is having a marker and adding it next, adding something next to it. Okay. So so I should expect that. And 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 you know, colloquially, I don't have any problem saying, "Oh, I just put it in the router outlet." But technically, uh, the router outlet is a marker, and the stuff is put as a sibling immediately after it. Is the way yeah. you're saying? Yeah, so that that's the only way how Angular appends things. It makes things a lot simpler for us internally. Well, and as long as I know that's what it's going to do, I won't be shocked. So you you mentioned a few times um, closure, roll up, tree shaking, things like that. Uh, where where in the roadmap is that stuff as far as getting into everybody's hands for developers? You mentioned how it's harder than it needs to be right now for most people to use, but 
Do you guys envision that being something that's in the near future, getting that in developers' hands, or, or where do you see that? Um, actually, I would need to sync up with our TypeScript team, <laughs> to be honest. I don't know exactly what their plans are. The plan is obviously to do that as fast as possible, but like what the concrete plans are, I, I don't have a number. I don't have a date for that. I wouldn't okay. let them give you a date anyway, but we are actually... <laughs> I actually just left a meeting right before this one where we are going through a prioritization and a waiting process. And this is, uh, you know, actually uh, the, the top number one thing. So uh, I can't give you a date either because we just left the planning meeting, but it, it is absolutely a priority. But that's all we really need to know is, you know, is this something on your horizon? And it sounds like you're saying yes very soon, at least as soon as you can get to it. I am saying yes as soon as we can get to it. So I work at a large corporation, and one of the things that I've been pitching is the idea of using code splitting and bundling and AOT for some of our apps, because we want apps to work for web or for mobile. Uh, and a lot of folks have been asking me this, when can we do this kind of stuff? Um, and one of the reasons they've been asking me is I showed them some preliminary numbers of a 400K app, which we could then split up into bundles of approximately 75K for the first load and then 50K for each additional bundle if we could do code splitting. And the advantage there is, you know, over Wi-Fi or even uh, wired internet, you're not going to see a difference in speed whether you load it all up front or not, quite frankly. But once you get on 3G or 4G, you're talking half a second to eight seconds. Those are the kind of differences you're looking at. So these kind of features to me are what really is going to separate Angular 2 from some of the others uh, by using AOT and code splitting and, and bundling. We agree with you, John. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, it's it's not just we internally in Google who did this. There's this team at Lucid Chart. Maybe you, you know that tool. They actually did it as well. Like they are super sharp, and they made it work. And it 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 worked well for their application. Like they reduced their startup time, I think, from eight seconds to five seconds. Like that's almost twice as fast just by using AOT. Yeah, and and I think part of it is uh, it is. You're able to do it now, but we really want to make this way easier. So, for example, the TypeScript team is talking, you know, can we make a Clojure compiler work uh, as it does for Google uh, for our external customers? So um, definitely things that we are thinking about and trying to get to as soon as possible. Jules, as you travel about, uh, uh, is the concern that John is talking about something you're seeing in the external world? Is it a is it a Google priority, too? Because we know that Google itself is a is a big user of Angular 2 and in some sense drives some of the uh, prioritization. Can you talk a little bit about how, where these forces are coming from and where you see them? So yes, Ward, we are getting uh, interest in this from most of the uh, developers that we talk to that are external to Google. Um, I wouldn't say that every big company, because uh, I think that's really what you're asking me, is bringing this up. Um, I'd say that the big companies who are really familiar with Angular 1 and are doing migrations absolutely are. Um, I would say that we're talking to an equal amount of big companies who are greenfielding Angular 2, and um, they sort of start off in a way that I think upgrades are not. Um, our TypeScript team has made uh, all of the AOT stuff with Clojure Compiler work already internally. So internally, Google projects are already able to take advantage of these things uh, much more readily than it's... I don't want to say doable for external because clearly it is doable. It just takes a little bit more work. John was sort of asking for timing. I'm asking about where, you know, the forces that are behind it. Uh, and and what I'm hearing is that there are a lot of in, internal forces driving this initiative and some external forces like John's that are uh, helping I, to give motivation to it. I think the way that I would say this is we've already done this internally. That was already the motivation. And we are now really well aware of what we need to do to make it work externally as well. That's even better. So I'm a huge fan of Electron. Obviously, with Angular Universal, that's um, a really big deal as well. I think why this is possible is because of how we separated out the, the renderers from you know the rest of the, the Angulars. And I'm curious what uh, rendering targets like you see is being or that are available, but even I'd love to hear your take on maybe some far out ones that uh, maybe we haven't thought about. For instance, like targeting like WebGL is a, is a render target. Right. So 
If you know a little bit about the internals of Angular 2, there's this renderer interface. And all the calls of Angular go, go through this renderer interface. And then we did demos about just by providing a different implementation for this renderer interface that so that Angular applications can run on web workers or they can run with, with, uh, with Electron or like NativeScript just has a different renderer in the end. And then your application works on mobile. So that's that's one way to do it. And and it works. Like now that we have this great compiler, we're thinking even further. Like this this renderer interface, it's nice to replace, but what you actually want, you want to have a code that is generated specifically for this platform. So you want to have the compiler, if it runs on the browser, output directly document.createElement calls, not call a renderer that will then eventually call document create element and so forth. And if if the compiler runs, and if your application will run on on mobile, let's say, maybe the compiler should output native code for your templates. That's just a crazy idea, but like it, it is possible technically, and we're exploring ideas in, in these directions. So so to 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 make a point there, like Electron and Web Workers, it's still experimental right now. We we do not recommend going with these into production. Because there's one big thing missing. Like first, we we might have a different compiler story, but the second thing is, if you if you are on web workers or if you are on Electron, then your application needs to be able to run code on the UI side. Like a web worker, your application is encapsulated; you cannot touch the DOM. But there are always edge cases that where you need to touch the DOM, and we don't have a good plugin model for for this thing. And we need to design this first before. You can build really big applications with this. Like demos work, but as soon as it gets bigger, you will have hit these edge cases, and they're no they're, that is not solved yet. All right. Well, um, we're kind of at the end of our time, so let's go ahead and get to some picks. Uh, Jules, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes. So my pick this week is definitely a personal thing. So as you've heard me say before, I'm purchasing my first home. It happens to be on the amazingly beautiful, glorious island of Maui. And for the last week, I've been freaking out, like, how am I actually going to get it furnished so that people like my friends could, you know, stay there? And I found this really awesome company. So while I know it's only going to be, like, valuable to a few listeners, if you need to ship something to Hawaii, there's a really cool new company called ShipToHawaii.com. And basically, they let you send your shipment directly to them, and then they ocean freight it over. So a really cool thing for me. So you're not like using apple crates and doors and stuff like that. It, it, this is not. You finally <laughs> left college. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. There might be some crates there for a while. Yeah, definitely, maybe. <laughs> so a pick of mine would be TensorFlow. Like I, I did machine learning in in college. It was super interesting, and I thought I I take it in college because I will never use it again. <laughs> and now there's this thing called TensorFlow, and there are all these examples showing up. Like it's super interesting, and there there's some bots that you can build. Like there's I the other day I I read somebody build a bot that that, that drives around and, and tells you what it sees. Like it, it drives around and says I see a dog, I see a door, and so forth. And it uses one of the machine learning ex examples from TensorFlow, which is like mind blowing. Hey, Tobias, guess what class I, well, I took a whole year of it in college thinking I would never use it or even really hear the words again? So no. Compiler design. Oh, well. That is my <laughs> yeah. favorite course in, in school. See? Here yeah. we are. All comes back. <laughs> Ward, what are your picks? Um, well, uh, in my dotage, I am reading a, a book that I swear I've read before. Uh, it feels like deja vu, but it, yet it still seems new to me. So it's called Your Inner Fish. Your Inner Fish, F-I-S-H. And it's by Neil Shubin. And it is an amazingly accessible, uh, insightful guide to um, evolutionist experience by somebody who's a scientist who's trying to find it. And this particular field of study is that moment brief moment when fish came out of the water and, and walked on land. Uh, and from there, he extrapolates. Um, so uh, we'll have the link to that in there. But it turns out it's also a PBS series uh, on TV. And so I'm adding the link to that on the um, uh, 
uh, in our show notes. All I can tell you is that this stuff, this biology stuff that usually leaves me, you know, blinking my eyes and looking for something else to read or do, uh, is still gripping me. Uh, and I, I, I highly recommend it if you're curious about um, evolution. Cool. Lucas, what are your picks? So I have uh, two picks. One is a talk from Angular Connect uh, this year, and it was by Dave Smith, um, Christ Cross-Site Request Funkery. And um, I just generally find Dave to be just a super engaging uh, speaker, super funny, and he's actually one of my favorite uh, speakers um, pretty much within at least the Angular community, if not across the board. So I think he gave just a, a really good talk. I always enjoy what he has to say. And my second pick is... Can I, can I, before you go on, can mm -hmm. I just do a plus 100 that? I saw that, and I thought it was the best uh, video piece I've seen, the uh, best explanation I've ever seen on cross-site request forgery. Yep. Is that so Dave I think, Smith I think, from JavaScript Jabber? Yep. Awesome. He is... Uh, so I, I think to a point, I almost feel like he's a bit underrated because every time he speaks, I'm just like, why is this guy not everywhere? He's amazing. That's so true. And uh, so, yeah, I, if you see him, give him a hug for me, Joe. And uh, so my second Will pick do. is uh, Professor Frisbee's Mostly Adequate Guide to Functional Programming by Brian Landstorff. I read it before. I've been picking it back up. It's just a free kind of ebook on GitHub, and it's just uh, pretty phenomenal. And Brian's also a really good speaker, and he does a really good job of taking you know, something that's fairly academic, like functional programming, and breaking it down into a way that mere mortals, such as myself, cannot digest. You know that's so last year, functional programming. We're not doing that anymore. It's dysfunctional programming this year. <laughs> nice. Joe, what are your thoughts? <laughs> All right. So um, just recently finished a book by Dean Koontz. It's actually a bit of an older book. Well, maybe it's only a few years old, but uh, it's called Life Expectancy. It's a very unusual, at least from what I know of Dean Koontz, uh, not so, it's, I don't know, it's just a very dis different kind of book. Really enjoyed it. Had a great time reading it. Life Expectancy by Dean Koontz. It's kind of, it's hilarious for one thing. Like, I laughed out loud quite a few times while reading the book. So I highly recommend it if you're looking for something a little bit different. Uh, life expectancy. And then, of uh, course, I gotta pick the uh, NG Cruise by NG Conf. Gonna be a conference on a boat uh, a couple months after actual NG Conf has happened. And NG Conf's in April. This is gonna be the end of May. And I'm so excited to go and sit on a boat and sit in the sunshine and only spend a little bit of time indoors listening to, to, to boring people like Dave Smith. Ugh, talk. <laughs> where, where, where's this boat going to be? You got to cruise around Salt Lake City or something? No, yeah, Great no, Salt no, Lake. No. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be going through uh, like basically the Bahamas. It's going leaving from Florida, sailing around in the I, I can't remember the exact ports. You can go to ngcruise.com and see the exact ports it's hitting. I think it leaves like May 28th or something. So excited for that. We have and. The artwork on the website is so cool. The designer is just super awesome. And these really these awesome stickers I gave out at Angular Connect. So anyway, super excited for the cruise. Um, and that's my that's my other pick. I do have some uh, ng-conf announcements as well. Oh, cool. We'll let you do those in a second. Let's get John's okay. picks, though. Cool. So I have some uh, quick picks. The first one is, since we're on the topic of AOT today, there's an NPM package called Source Map Explorer. The link is here in the show notes. And with the Source Map Explorer, what you can effectively do is use that to point to your build, your bundle, and then a map file if you want to. And it will show you a visual diagram of all of the code and the functions and things that are actually in your bundle. So after you do something like roll up or uh, closure on it, you can take a look and see did it actually get rid of the things that I know are not being used, um, which is really, really pretty wicked cool. And it's very fast to run it. Second thing I'd like to pick is, uh, Joe, is it okay if we talk about the Angular 2 Ultimate Workshop? Yeah, you bet. Cool. So we have rescheduled it. Um, first time I've ever had to reschedule a workshop in 20 years of speaking uh, because uh, Hurricane decided to come to the site where we were going to hold it, and we thought maybe we shouldn't. 
uh, prioritize the workshop over the safety of our guests. So <laughs> we rescheduled it, and now we are scheduling it for, was it November 4th and 5th, Joe? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Friday and Saturday. Friday and Saturday, November 4th and 5th. Uh, the folks at Microsoft offices in Tampa have donated their space to this, uh, being a huge help. So we can at least do it uh, within the same state, relatively uh, close, a nice short drive from where we were originally going to do it in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so if anybody is interested in coming down to see me and Dan Walleen and Joe Eames do a workshop for two days in Angular 2 and learn the latest and greatest, including IoT, uh, please check us out at the Ultimate Angular 2 Workshop. Awesome. I'm just going to throw a quick pick out and then we'll get Joe's NGConf announcements. Um, I've been reading this book. It's called The 12-Week Year. Basically, it's a planning and productivity book. Um, but I don't know what it is, but something about this process really clicks with me. And so I'm super excited to get into it and do it. In fact, I listened to the book on Audible in about a week. And then uh, as soon as it got over, I closed the book out, went back into the app and started the book all over again. So I'm, I'm really excited about the options that are there. So if you're looking at planning, you think a year's too long, uh, maybe a little bit shorter term uh, vision will help uh, achieve the longer term goals, then check it out. All right, Joe. You're scaring me. You're scaring me, Chuck, because I need those other 50 weeks or 40 weeks. You can't cut my year down to 12 weeks. What's an old guy like me supposed to do? And I need 26 hours in the day, not 24. So you're scaring me, man. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> All right, Joe, what are your announcements? Um, actually, I want to throw in one more pick. I've forgotten. It's pretty topical based on what we've been talking about today. I just found out about astexplorer.net. So you can post, place it in some like JavaScript, and then you can see the actual abstract syntax tree of your JavaScript over on the right-hand side in a tree form and, and see how it gets represented as an AST. It's super interesting uh, if you're interested at all in what ASTs are and how they work. It's really cool. So astexplorer.net. And now on to ng-conf uh, announcements. The lottery is now open. You can register for the lottery to win a, um, the opportunity to buy a ticket. So it's free to register, and then people who win will have the opportunity to go and buy their tickets to ng-conf happening uh, April 4th, 5th, and 6th, I believe. Or 5th, 6th, and 7th. That's right, April 5th, 6th, and 7th in Salt Lake City. So as always, way more demand than there are tickets. So the lottery is by far your best chance uh, to get a ticket to ng-conf. And you just head over to ng-conf.org, ng-conf.org, if you want to, to register. And the uh, CFP is announced. It's going to open up on November 1st, and it'll close on January 8th. So for those who are listening, generate your ideas for an awesome talk for ng-conf, and please submit them. We're, as always, looking for really excellent talks about Angular 1, Angular 2, community-related uh, items, that sort of stuff. And that's it. All right. We'll go ahead and wrap this up then. Um, we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bye.